0: Hi, I'm Eden, and I'm Nicole.
1: Welcome to Roadside Horror Show.
0: We are in Minnesota this week.
1: Oh, Minnesota!
0: Yes, yeah, fun accents.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm sure that'll pop up accidentally. I'm going to apologize in advance for these next two episodes if we slip into the Minnesota Midwestern twang.
0: Oh yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> it started already. I do have some fun facts about Minnesota, which I think you'll enjoy, Eden. Uh, much like Wisconsin, the name Minnesota comes from the Minnesota River.
0: Okay. Makes sense.
1: Uh, the word Minnesota comes from a Native American Sioux language. It comes from two words in the Sioux language. One is mini, which means water, and sota, which means cloudy or sky-tinted. So Minnesota basically means cloudy or sky-tinted water, which I thought was really pretty. Interesting. Yeah. Chicken of water, two of Minnesota's popular nicknames are the land of 10,000 lakes, due to, of course, all the lakes in the state.
0: There's a lot of them.
1: And the North Star State, which I didn't know.
0: I didn't know that either. I know
1: Texas is like the Lone Star State. Yep. But Minnesota is apparently the North Star State. And that's because the state motto is L'Etoile de Nord, which is French for Star of the North. And it's a nod to the early French settlers in the region.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Speaking of folks who have settled in Minnesota, the state's well-known for its Scandinavian German heritage, right? Yes. Like, that's what I think of.
0: I think of Rose from Golden Girls.
1: Oh, yeah. St. Olaf. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. 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 But did you know that Minneapolis and St. Paul are also home to the country's largest Hmong and Somali populations?
0: I did not know that.
1: I didn't know that either. Very cool. Yeah. Minnesota's also produced some pretty amazing people and inventions. Such modern wonders as spam, Ugh. <laughs> scotch and masking tape, Okay. the bunt pan, which makes a lot of sense, I feel.
0: Yeah, I think it does too.
1: Rollerblades. Cool. Uh, the Milky Way candy bar was invented in Minnesota.
0: Huh, I never knew that.
1: Water skis.
0: Water skis.
1: One of my favorite inventions of all time, the pop-up toaster.
0: Oh, of course. Tonka I trunks. like how it scares cats.
1: <laughs> Tonka trunks. The snowblower's twister zuba's pants remember those terrible things from the 80s with the muscle pants oh yeah, yeah okay and nerf balls all were invented in minnesota
0: huh okay
1: i really did not know any of that i n- neither did i i was like absolutely delighted to learn more about minnesota because it seems like a very awesome state frankly it
0: seems pretty damn cool
1: also famous minnesotans include entertainers like bob dylan prince judy garland writers like f scott's fitzgerald and sinclair lewis and of course, the former governor, professional wrestler Jesse the Body but Ventura,
0: or now Jesse the Mind Ventura. So. That's
1: true. That's true. Either way, he's like my second favorite childhood heel. Yeah. After Rod- Rowdy Roddy Piper, of oh, course. Really? See, I sucker for Scottish accents. Come on, That's true. He wrestled.
0: I love Ric Flair because he's weird. That's fair.
1: I can, I can, I can get behind that. So Minnesotans love big things. The Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota, is the largest mall in the U.S. with over two million eight hundred and sixty-nine square feet of space. Wow! Uh, I actually got the chance to go to the Mall of America last time I was in Minneapolis, and it's crazy impressive.
0: I'm sure it is. They have a roller coaster inside. Yes,
1: I went on the. Ro- they several. I went on several of the roller coasters. There's a log flume.
0: There's a log flume. Yeah, there's a
1: whole Nickelodeon-like park in the center of the mall. What? And of course, you know my wife. She's like rides. We're going on them.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: There's also pretty much any kind of food you could ever want to eat. And uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't get hangry. I get hung fused where I get hungry and confused and I don't know what I want. I just know I'm hungry. Oh,
0: I think that happens to a lot of people because I know (laughs) I have that problem. Once I get to a certain point of being really hungry... I end up just being like, I don't know what I want. Nothing sounds good. And everything sounds good all at the same time.
1: That happened to us when we were at the Mall of America. I was like standing in the food court, literally any option you could choose from because it's the Mall of freaking America. Yeah. And my wife's like, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. Let's just leave and go to McDonald's. (laughs) She's like, no, you're crazy right now. We're going to get get some gelato and you're going to be fine. I'm like, okay. Uh, Speaking of big things, aside from the Mall of America. Uh, the world's biggest ball of twine, yes, indeed, is in Minnesota.
0: Was it actually Bundy, Minnesota or whatever?
1: No, it wasn't Bundy, Minnesota. Okay. It is the largest ball of twine made by one person, and it's in Darwin, Minnesota. It was rolled by Francis A. Johnson. Johnson began rolling it in 1950 and would wrap for four hours per day for 29 years.
0: Holy crap, that's dedication right there. Yeah.
1: In the end, he ended up creating a 12-foot diameter ball of twine, and it weighs 17,400 pounds. Holy shit. Yeah, it's huge. Like, it's in an outdoor, like, almost a gazebo, because that's how big it is.
0: I just really thought that whole ball of twine thing was a joke, joke. yeah.
1: It's a real thing. And, even better, the city of Darwin holds Twine Ball Day each year, where they celebrate this achievement.
0: Wow. I mean, it's (laughs) a really kind of pointless achievement, but... Still, that takes a lot of dedication and good for you. I mean,
1: yep. I always thought it was just like that weird owl song, the biggest uh, ball of twine in Minnesota. I just mm-hmm. thought that was like the joke. Yeah. No, it's a real thing. Who knew? Yeah.
0: I just thought it was something from Drop Dead Gorgeous. So.
1: No. <laughs> so, Minnesota, well done. You yeah. created some amazing things, some very large things and some pretty awesome people.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. You betcha.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Eden. Yes. It's your turn to tell me a true crime story.
0: And I got one for you. All right. So, for this week's story, we're taking a trip to St. Cloud, Minnesota. It's certainly one of the better known cities in the state, and with good reason. It's situated mostly in Stearns County, which is in the center of the state and hosts the largest population in that portion at 68,462 people, while the metropolitan area has a population of 189,093 people. It is also the county seat of Stearns County. It's a good size as well and with an area of uh, 41.05 square miles. Hmm. Parts of the city do touch into both Benton and Sherburne counties as well. It's also near the Mississippi River. It also has the distinction of being the fourth largest metropolitan area in the state, surpassed only by Minneapolis-St. Paul, Duluth-Superior, and Rochester. The city is also an award-winning one as well. It's won three first prize awards uh, from LiveCom, which is an international awards group who gives awards out to the most livable cities. Oh, cool. It's been praised for its landscape, cultural and heritage management, empowerment and arts as you'd expect from an area of this size there's a wide range of things to keep you occupied in this city for history or tour buffs you can check out the cathedral of saint mary an italian romanesque church built in the 20s or check out the Stearns history museum which is accredited by the american alliance of museums nature lovers can have a great time at the munsinger gardens and clemens gardens or quarry park
1: quarry park
0: yeah hmm. uh it's even home to the state's amateur baseball hall of fame
1: huh. i didn't know that existed i didn't know either that's cool though
0: if none of these options suit you there's always the theater which hopefully won't be showing a performance of death of a salesman because that's what i'm going to be talking about today <laughs> let's get started and yes writing that made me say aloud corny joke check <laughs> Anyway, if you couldn't guess, this week's story is about the murder of a businessman and the circumstances surrounding his death might just surprise you this week, or maybe not because I think y'all kind of know the stories I go for by now.
1: I always like to maintain my air of openness to see what you'll bring to the table every week, so
0: Well, I thank you for that.
1: I'm always I'm permanently surprised, just like my cat.
0: <laughs> so our victim's name was Kenneth McLennan. He was 53 at the time of his death and worked as a Tupperware executive. Huh. All my sources focus more on the murderers than the victim. So I don't know exactly what he was doing, but it was kind of like, uh, is he actually selling the Tupperware or does he just manage the distribution of sales?
1: Yeah. Does he work for Tupperware directly as like an executive or is it like you've risen up the ranks of the sales hierarchy? Okay.
0: Um. Anyway, it just makes me think of uh, Belinda from the podcast. My dad wrote a porno since she was the regional sales manager of Pots and Pans or something ridiculous. <laughs> I do know, however, that he was in charge of international sales. Okay. I don't know if he had the same ways of doing business as Belinda, but God, I hope not. <laughs> Other things I know about him are that he had just gotten back from a business trip at this point, and his wife had died of cancer sometime before this incident while they were living in Canada, where they were originally from. Okay. Well, let's dive right into the night of Mr. McLennan's murder. So on this night, Ken's son, Jason, who was 17 at the time, had been out with friends for the night. It was pretty late and he was just getting home and he decides to take a quick shower downstairs before going up to the kitchen for a snack, which is when he sees his dad lying in a pool of blood by the front door.
1: Oh, Jesus.
0: So he's been shot several times when he goes to check. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Jason calls 911. He tells them, my dad's just been shot. I just came home and he's on the ground. Send an ambulance. When police checked out the scene, They could see Ken was already in his robe, which probably meant that he had been in bed and came down the stairs, which were behind where his body lay in the foyer. Okay. They could see some blood spatter on the runner going up the stairs as well. They noticed that he had been shot in the throat, temple, forehead, chest, back, and right hand. Mm. Now... I'm not a real detective, but as we all well know, I play one on this podcast because I can't help myself. <laughs> what this says to me is that, first of all, someone's got a lot of anger. And secondly, some of those shots seemed execution style.
1: Yeah, some seem little the hand strikes me as maybe a little defensive. I
0: do have a reason for that that I will get into. Oh, cool. They do believe the shot to the right hand. Was because once Ken realized what was happening, he grabbed the end of the gun oh. to try to like stop it. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, reflex, but also you're not going to stop that bullet. Yeah. Um. They believe that he was shot six or seven times, and that every shot fired hit its target. There were not there were no shell casings to be seen on the floor near the body, so it would stand to reason that the gunman had taken the time to pick up each and every shell casing on the ground before making a run for it. But as we can probably all remember from a past story, sometimes you miss one. Mm-hmm. And that was the case here. You can probably also remember from the same story that sometimes you wrap them in a towel and leave them in the washer like a dumbass, Amy.
1: Would that happen here too? No. Oh,
0: that'd be too, too good. I just need to make fun of Amy because for some reason Amy's and Kim's are just the worst. Um, anyway, so they are able to find one shell casing and they were able to tell from this that, uh, these were 22 caliber slugs. Okay. Upon searching the rest of the house, they start to think the motive is robbery since Ken's watch, wallet, ID, and some of his cash were all gone. Robbery would have been a good motive, but I can definitely think of a better one. Life insurance, fraud, and inheritance. He was worth over $1 million when you combine both his assets and his life insurance policy. Mm. They also decided to take this into account and focused on that as well because for once, we aren't dealing with stupid policemen. The next morning, they decide to take a look around in the freshly fallen snow and they find something important. They find footprints in the snow leading up to the front of the house where Ken was shot. Uh, They also find some in the back as well. When it came time for the autopsy, things got a little more interesting. They were able to find seven .22 caliber slugs in his body, but they were of four different kinds, which means that they were most likely dealing with multiple assailants. Weird. Yeah. So they were also considering Jason as a suspect. At this time as well, because he's the one that found the body. And honestly, he was my first guess as to who committed this crime because of him getting home and immediately showering. Mm -hmm. That just screams guilty to me every time. (laughs) But you know I trust no one. They didn't really think he did it, though, because his clothing had no traces of blood and his hands were clean of any GSR. They did a gunshot residue test immediately Mm -hmm. and his hands showed up clean. There was, however, another suspect... He was engaged to a fellow business person, a woman named Alessandra Loutens. They had been living together for some time. Uh, It's weird to explain how this family moves around. If I'm remembering correctly, they were living in Canada for a while, which is where Jason was born. But they then moved down to Florida, I think, and then back to Canada for his wife's final years. Uh, And then I'm pretty sure they moved to um, Florida again. Uh, which is where the fiancé moved in, and then finally Minnesota. Okay. From what I could gather through multiple sources, Jason didn't like the fact that she was living with them, and I can totally see why. His mother passed away, and his dad is trying to move on. It's difficult for a child to realize that it may have been something Ken needed after his wife's death. And at the same time, Jason is probably thinking, who is this woman trying to replace my mom? Yeah. So I can definitely see both sides.
1: And he's at that right age because he'd be 17 when his father was killed. Then it's like you know, yeah. this has been going on for a year or two, presumably. And I think
0: it's been going on for a little longer than that. But yeah. yeah, so it's a
1: very tender age to feel like you're...
0: Oh, yeah. So I don't know how long they were engaged for, but their relationship was a bit troubled. They did find some emails to that effect, which were from around the time of Ken's death, which made it extra suspicious. Oh, and she was a beneficiary of his life insurance policy, so red flag right there.
1: Red flag.
0: When checking on her whereabouts, however, they were able to find out that she was thousands upon thousands of miles away at the time. She was back home in Switzerland when Ken was murdered. Hmm. So this could still be murder for hire, but she, you know, wouldn't be off the book the hook yet in my book at least, but who knows. So, They asked Jason about those footprints in the snow and he comes right out and says, yeah, they're mine and my friends. I'm not allowed to smoke in the house, so I go outside to smoke sometimes.
1: Okay. Reasonable explanation. Exactly.
0: They took shoes from both Jason and his friend Matthew Moeller for uh, comparison and they were a match to the prints in the snow. I would be amiss if I didn't mention that whenever the articles I read listed Jason's name... They did so using his middle name as well, making him Jason Alexander. Weird. Anyone who knows the actor who played George Costanza from Seinfeld should know why I find this so funny.
1: An interesting way to do the name of someone in an article.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I remember when Britney Spears got married for the first time too and her husband's name was Jason Alexander. I was so confused as to why she married a chubby, bald, Middle-aged man until I found out it was a different guy. (laughs) So back to the story. I'm also going to add here that there was a third set of prints, and those were the ones that were leading to the front door. So we still don't know who they belong to, but remember that we could be looking at up to like four killers here with the different bullets that were used. Fun fact. Thank you, Forensic Files, for this one, because the program that they used to tell what shoe patterns uh, are what has a name just as punny as some of the episode titles. Soulmates, which obviously is spelled S-O-L-E.
1: <laughs> I kind of love that.
0: Yeah, it's great. And they, they just run the pattern through and they can see like what brand of shoe it is. That's super cool. Yeah. The shoes were found to be Lug's boots. Uh, which were popular more so with kids than adults, and especially people who listen to Mm hip-hop. So they figured that, you know, probably a teenager, maybe someone in their early 20s, somewhere around there. Yeah. Now, here's where things get really good. They get a tip from the father of a student at Tech High School, which is where Jason attended school at this time. He said that his daughter had overheard details of a murder conspiracy, and she was very upset about it. Now, I should mention that I'm happy no one on this podcast knows how to keep their damn mouth shut about murder. But why the hell does no one know how to keep their damn mouth shut about murder? I mean, you want to
1: share your day with people, Eden.
0: I, I guess, I suppose. What did you do? Ah, uh, you know, I plotted to commit murder, had some cereal. That was great.
1: Oh, and I got a great two-for-one deal on Lugs down at the mall. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so the student got on the phone and began... crying hysterically when telling her story Uh, they learn a lot from this conversation and uh, from what i could gather uh, it seemed that nothing was what it appeared to be one of my sources stated that a co-worker of ken's said that he was a very upstanding father and husband but this conversation told a different story basically it was said that ken pretty much abandoned his dying wife in the hospital and that created a rift between him and his son, Jason. Jason was around 12 at the time and Ken just up and left, I'm assuming for business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he went abroad for a few weeks while his wife lay dying in the hospital of cancer. Yikes. So not great. This obviously took a toll on Jason's mental health. He was left to fend for himself a lot of the time because, you know, his father was gone on business trips constantly. So back to this phone call. And uh, what got this girl so upset. So Kim Rico, oops, I mean, Jason Alexander McLennan, uh, went around the school being like, hey, having a little killing my father party. So if you want to come, it's BYOG. So bring your own gun.
1: Wow.
0: Um, everyone seemed to decline as far as this girl knew, though. But yeah, just went around being like, who wants to kill my dad? Raise your hand.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so definitely Kim. Most of the people whom he talked to about this just kind of had the same reaction that Kim's co-workers had and were like, ha ha, you're so funny. Uh, but once he was, you know, found shot to death,
1: everyone's like, oh, damn, everyone
0: in the school was talking about it. And uh, that's how this girl heard. Mm.
1: It's the weird w- that she was so upset, though.
0: Yeah, like she. Well, I mean, I don't really know if she knew him, but maybe she was just a very sensitive person and cared about human life. I guess. Damn it, Nicole. Why are you so unfeeling that you just don't care?
1: Listen, you know my heart's half dead.
0: <laughs> so, uh, the one person that they knew of that agreed to this weird thing was the aforementioned friend Matt Moeller, who did so in exchange for money. About $1,000, if I'm correct there. Okay. Um, they searched for Matt's house, and they found a rifle in Matt's room, testing them, uh, you know against what they had. Mm -hmm. They didn't find a match at first, but they used this thing called a boroscope, which lets you see inside the barrel. And there were these little scratches inside. And this seemed to have happened recently. Hmm. They tested the bullets again in light of this new discovery and they were a match. They also found a small amount of blood inside the barrel of the gun
1: Which would happen if somebody grabbed it, let's say, when you were shooting it.
0: Exactly, Nicole. You're one smart cookie.
1: Well, I've learned from the best, Eden.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: I'm risk a (laughs) haggitide (laughs) now.
0: The best cop on TV. (laughs) So, yeah, my brain, just like yours, lit up when hearing this and figured it was probably from the shot through Ken's hand. They tested the blood as well, and it was also a match. Mm Mm-hmm so now we're getting somewhere they question Moeller, and he immediately sings like a canary (laughs) but he's also trying to say that he didn't actually shoot ken at all and that was all jason's doing
1: Uh, interesting
0: matt tells this story and pretty much says hey you can use my gun and i'll be you know there for moral support but i'm waiting in the car he tells police that he was waiting in the car, heard the gunshots, and then Jason comes out and says, here's the gun back. K, thanks, bye, and leaves. Matt also admitted to sticking an Allen wrench in the gun, uh, you know, to warp the barrel and make it look as if the bullets didn't match the gun. Interesting. So, smart move, but yeah. they Not still figured enough. it out, buddy.
1: Not smart enough.
0: Nope. He also talked about the four different types of bullets, saying they planned it like that to make it harder to trace back to any particular gun. This was information that had not been made public about the four bullets yet. Interesting. Um, So the police knew for sure that Matt was involved by that simple fact. They then talked to Jason and he denies any and all involvement. He's like, hey, no, even if I hated my dad, I wouldn't do that to him. You know? Yeah. However, they get another tip from a different student because, again, no one can keep their fucking mouth shut. <laughs>
1: that high school, high school gossip mill is brutal. Right?
0: So uh, they tell them that they know where Jason and Matt's bloody clothes are actually just Jason's bloody clothes are hidden. Mm-hmm. The police follow this tip and they find bloodstained clothing belonging to Jason tucked away on a property owned by Matt's family. To make matters worse for Jason, these were the clothes that other students remember him wearing on the day of the murder. Oh, no. Yeah, and they test the blood against Ken's, and guess what? It's a match. They also found a bloody glove with the clothes that forensic testing showed was worn by Jason because you leave skin cells Mm -hmm. everywhere you go, Mm -hmm. people. It's just a thing. We all shed our DNA all the time. People
1: think cats are bad.
0: I know. People are just as bad. Also, there was gunshot residue all over it uh, from four different types of bullets.
1: Explains why he passed those gun set residue tests at the scene. Exactly,
0: gloves. I initially thought, well, he did take a shower, but even then, there'd probably still be some trace. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at this point, the only thing they didn't know was who the hell left those footprints in the front of the house. That's the one thing that they hadn't figured out yet
1: right because they identified Matt and they identified jason yeah there was that extra set
0: exactly so they talked to matt again and offered him a deal if he cooperated he pled guilty to second degree murder for the uh, for reduced sentence Uh, he let the cops know that those shoe prints in the snow belonged to him and gave the cops his other shoes that he had brought with him to throw them off the track
1: interesting so this is definitely a calculated crime it's
0: very well thought out
1: yeah disturbing
0: i mean and that's the other thing even though we get some people that are really dumb on this podcast a lot of them have like really well thought out ideas and they're just they go about it in such a dumb way Mm -hmm. so yeah he gave them his other shoes now and they matched those other prints uh, he says that he made the footprints to, you know, throw the police off. He also admitted to ring the doorbell as a distraction so Jason could jump out and shoot his father. They also went through the house and made it look like a robbery gone wrong. Along with those clothes, they also found some foreign currency. I think there were like euros or something mm-hmm. um, because his dad, you know, traveled abroad. So, yeah, they arrested and tried Jason who pleaded not guilty and used a self-defense claim saying his father was abusive and it was battered child syndrome. Mm. So it's just like battered spouse syndrome, battered yeah. woman syndrome, whatever you want to call it. Um, the jury didn't really buy this. And he was found guilty and is serving life in prison for the murder. Matt, like we discussed, was only convicted of second-degree murder uh, as he took the deal. And he was sentenced to 30 years in prison for his part. Yikes. So, all in all, I'd say that we learned a few things from this story. So, kids, don't be like Matt. Jason was going to give him, like, I think something like $1,000 for his help. And instead, he got 30 years behind bars. Totally not worth it, in my opinion.
1: Mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's a bad deal.
0: Oh, and certainly don't be like Jason either. Just say nope and be in Eden and Nicole instead. (laughs) So, Nicole, what you think?
1: I mean, that's definitely a weird one. Like in terms of like the intricate planning they went through to make it look like a robbery gone wrong, make Mm -hmm. it look like multiple suspects. And then it's kind of ironic that the reason they got caught is because they couldn't keep their trap shut. Yep.
0: Exactly. It's
1: like, that's like the greatest downfall. It's like, shut your mouth. Like,
0: because if that never happened, they probably never would have known who did this. No,
1: it would have been a cold, gone cold. And then,
0: I mean, these are obviously two very smart kids. Yeah. To be able to plan all of that and know how to not leave traces of anything, um, but really dumb kids in the fact that they decided to do this anyway. So all that potential yeah. that they could have had, things they probably could have done, people they could have been, all squandered because you had to be a fucking idiot and decide to kill somebody.
1: Yeah. Although it's probably good that they're in jail for so long since it's clearly they're intelligent enough to make calculated decisions to to pull off a crime.
0: And I mean, it's kind of just like, well, next time I won't get caught because now I know what I did wrong. So Horrific to think about. Yeah. So it's probably a good thing that they're in jail for a long time. My sources for this week were Wikipedia for my intro, an episode of Forensic Files called Shoot to Thrill. So yet again, pun title. uh, J-A-A-P-L dot com Caselaw.findlaw.com, forensicfilesnow.com, and OrlandoSentinel.com.
1: Well, thanks for that story, Eden.
0: Absolutely. I had fun writing that one.
1: I guess we'll take a short break and we'll be back with a paranormal story and some other special things. Yes. All right. Talk to you soon.
0: We are back.
1: Hi, guys. Did you miss us?
0: They did. You know they
1: did. I know.
0: We're just very lovable. (laughs) Uh, So I got a weird news story of the week for you guys. This one is from Maryland. So apparently they saw something floating like in the, in the river. Okay. And they're like, holy shit, this is a casket. (gasps) What? Yeah. They're like, what the fuck was someone like grave robbing or did it like fall out of our hearse on the way to a funeral? Like Mm -hmm. what is going on? Why is there this casket? in the freaking river just floating there. So they go to, you know, scoop it on out and find out it's actually a floating dock. What? It was not a casket to begin with. It was just a freaking dock.
1: That is weird.
0: Dumb, dumb, dumb. (laughs) Yeah, so a photo was posted to Facebook by uh, radio station WRNRFM. Uh, And it showed an object that appeared to be shaped like a coffin floating in the South River. And it sparked an investigation by Maryland Natural Resources Police. Mm -hmm. Uh, The police elicited the help from the Maryland Department of Natural Resources Hydrographic Operations Team. And the object was fished out of the water. The department said the investigators determined the suspected burial vault was just part of a floating dock.
1: <laughs> Somebody is really mad their dock
0: floated away. I mean, that's the picture of it when they're pulling it out. So I could see where yeah, they thought, that, kind of. That
1: does look quite a bit like a coffin.
0: But, yep. Definitely weird. Yes. I chuckled, so I had to had to read that one.
1: That's fair. That's fair. I do have a paranormal story for you, Eden.
0: Ooh, good. Hopefully it's scarier than dock coffins.
1: I mean, it's pretty good. I enjoyed researching it and learning about it. So our stop today is in downtown St. Paul. Oh, okay. Uh, St. Paul is the capital of Minnesota with an estimated population of about 308,000 residents, making it the 63rd most populous city in the U.S. and the 11th most populous city in the Midwest. Huh, Okay. Now, St. Paul lies mostly on the eastern bank of the Mississippi near the confluence of the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers. It's, of course, adjacent to Minneapolis, which is Minnesota's largest city. Collectively, they're commonly called the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. The Minneapolis-St. Paul area together is home to over 3.6 million people and is the 16th largest metro area in the U.S.
0: Okay, wow. So it's pretty damn big.
1: Yep, yep. A.K.A. the Sin Cities, for all you drop-dead gorgeous fans out there.
0: A.K.A. Minneapolis St. Paul.
1: (laughs) Uh. Now, throughout its history, St. Paul has really been defined by a steady influx of immigrants who've altered the city's cultural landscape while working to improve their own lives. Waves of immigrants from all over the world have come to settle in St. Paul. It includes people who are French, French French-Canadian, German, Swedish, Irish, Czech, Austro-Hungarian, Polish, Italian, Mexican, Somali, and Hmong. St. Paul's roots go back to the 19th century with the establishment of nearby Fort Snelling in 1819. And they established Fort Snelling to basically protect the regional fur trade. Okay. As the fur trade grew, so did the whiskey trade, of course. Alrighty. Which led I can't
0: really get down with fur but I can get down with whiskey
1: I'll you know, spend the hard day out there catching fur furry animals and you just want to come home to a fine glass of whiskey of course now all this uh whiskey distilling led the military leaders in Fort Snelling to ban the distillation process on Fort property now one particularly successful whiskey distiller at the time who got the boot was Pierre Pieye perrot who moved his operation five miles downstream in 1838. Then Pig Eye established a tavern called L'eau de Cochon, which is French for Pig Eye.
0: I'm just going to stop you right there. Pig Eye?
1: Yep, Pig Eye.
0: Why is he called Pig Eye?
1: That was just his nickname. Um, some sources said Pig Eye, some said Pig's Eye. Okay. Um, I guess he just had...
0: Piggy Eyes. Piggy
1: Eyes, yeah.
0: All right, I do not envy him.
1: <laughs> now Pig-Eyes Tavern and whiskey operation led to more French Canadians coming to the area and settling there. In 1841, the settlement was officially named St. Paul. Over the next decade or so, St. Paul became an important stop for all kinds of people who were heading out west. And it was formally incorporated into a city in 1854. When Minnesota became a state in 1858, it was selected as a state capital. Between the 1860s and 1890s, St. Paul was booming. It was called, quote, the last city of the East because it became the headquarters and starting point for several large rail lines that led to the West Coast, most notably the Great Northern Railway and the Northern Pacific Railway. As a state capital, the city also became a center for the financing and banking industries in the area. During the 20th century, St. Paul continued to grow. Its population nearly doubled between 1900 and 1960, and several large manufacturing companies set up shop in the city. These include, of course, 3M, which was formerly the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, Traveler's Insurance, and even the Ford Motor Company, who established the large Twin City assembly plant there in 1924.
0: That's the one thing I did know.
1: About the, the Twin Cities assembly plant for Ford? Yes. Oh. I
0: Don't ask me why, because I don't like Fords, but... <laughs>
1: It's interesting because apparently at that assembly plant, they put it right along the Mississippi River because there was a bunch of limestone caves and the Ford company would actually mine silica okay, from those caves and used to create automotive glass, Wow, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Whenever I think of silica, I just think of the silica packets to keep stuff fresh.
1: Oh yeah. Keep things dry.
0: And the fact that since I work in a warehouse, I know who wins the battle versus a pallet jack. And a silica gel packet. Really? Who wins? The silica gel packet. Really? (laughs) It will not go over one. It'll just... And also, the tiniest little piece of wood? Nope. Won't run over that either. You will not be able to get through.
1: (laughs) Now, as Prohibition and the Great Depression rolled out across the nation, St. Paul became a major hub for bootlegging, of course, because it's so far north, so close to the Canadian border. And it also became a safe haven for gangsters from other Midwestern cities. Basically, if things got too hot in Chicago, you would head off to St. Paul to cool your heels a little bit. After 1950, economic difficulties and migration to the suburbs triggered a decline in St. Paul. But the city took large-scale action in the mid-70s to renew its urban center with several projects that helped redevelop the downtown business district and the residential areas of downtown St. Paul. Cool. Today, St. Paul is a major education, healthcare, government, financial, and industrial center. It still has a highly diversified manufacturing sector that includes automobiles, chemicals, computer products, and software, tools, machinery, medical equipment, all of it's produced in and around St. Paul. Okay. It's also a major center for higher education. St. Paul is actually ranked number two in the number of higher education institutes per capita in the US. Wow. Yeah, the only city that has more higher education institutes per capita is Boston.
0: I could see that.
1: Yeah. I was like shocked because I know Boston has a ton of schools. Yeah.
0: Well, I always think of New England because of all the Ivy League Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah.
1: Now, some of the higher education institutes that call St. Paul home include three public and eight private colleges and universities, five post-secondary institutes, well-known colleges and universities including St. Catherine's University, Concordia University, Hamlin University, Macalester College, and the University of St. Thomas. Are all located in St. Paul. Wow. Yeah. Tons of cool colleges. Now, our stop for today is located on the south shore of the Mississippi River in downtown St. Paul. And it's absolutely steeped in the history that I just briefly reviewed. Now, the sandstone bluffs that rise up near this part of the river have been used in the past. Like we mentioned, Ford would mine their for silica. And over the past 180 years, a series of interconnected caverns have been carved out of the soft stan- sandstone to create our subterranean destination for the day. Ooh. The Wabasha Street Caves.
0: Nice. You know what? I looked into this too a little bit. I didn't actually read it, but I was like, well, I could do another cave.
1: Yeah. I was inspired by your previous cave story. And I'm nice. like, this could be really cool.
0: Yeah. I, I actually really liked the doing the cave story. I thought it was really fun, really cool. A lot of good ghosties, so hopefully yours will too.
1: Sneak peek, it does. Nice. Now, the Wabasha Street Caves are still in use today. Primarily, they're an event center, and I'll cover more about that a little bit later. But the initial caverns that make up the street caves were initially natural caves that just happened to be there in the bluff. They were used by local indigenous people before the first European settlers even came to the St. Paul area.
0: Very cool.
1: In the 1840s, the natural caves were dug deeper and expanded so that silica could be mined from the rock. And then several glass manufacturing businesses were set up along the river as well. Okay. By the close of the 19th century, the mining activity had pretty much ceased in the caves on Wabasha Street. But there was still activity in the caves. In the later half of the 19th century, Yerkes Brewery, which was the first commercial brewery in Minnesota, actually built a facility at the top of the bluff. Like other Bavarian immigrant brewmasters, the founder, Anthony Jurg, began to use the caves to lager his beer. It's basically a way to help him cool and lager the beers naturally. Nice. Now, other immigrants also used the Wabasha Street caves to bring their businesses from the Old World to St. Paul. A Frenchman named Albert Mouchnotte arrived in the early 1900s and realized that these caves were the perfect environment with a naturally geothermic properties to help grow mushrooms very cool so together with his family he set up a mushroom production operation in the caves
0: as long as no one's using it to try to cure tuberculosis or whatever i think we're good
1: (laughs) now when prohibition started in 1920 the jurg brewery still used the caves, but they kind of shifted production to dairy products and soft drinks. Sadly, their business never fully recovered, and the original company ceased operation in 1952. But the mushnot mushroom business, which was run at that point by Albert's daughter and her husband, a couple named the Lehmans, hilariously enough. Wow. (laughs) They still had a pretty successful mushroom business, and then they diversified by using portions of the cave as a speakeasy.
0: Wow, that was that would be really cool.
1: Yep, yep. It was called the Wabasha Street Speakeasy, and they also offered up unused caves as part of a storage operation for other bootleggers in the area. I figured as much. Now, the proximity of the caves to the Mississippi River, it's like literally right there. And the natural ability c- to conceal all kinds of activity from prying eyes made this a hot spot for illegal activity.
0: Which is Pretty standard for any sort of bootlegging or any sort of speakeasy.
1: Exactly. And like I mentioned before in the intro, St. Paul was booming in the the 20s and 30s with all kinds of criminal activity. Yeah. Fun fact. During this time, St. Paul was known as one of the booziest cities in the country. Makes sense. Less fun fact. More than 20% of the nation's bank robberies in 1932 took place in Minnesota, mostly due to all the gangsters chilling around the Twin Cities.
0: Yep. Again, makes complete and total sense.
1: Right? Now, at the Wabasha Street Speakeasy, rumors circulated that if patrons would head in on any given night, they might encounter some celebrity criminals like John Dillinger or Ma Barker. Wow. The speakeasy was reborn as the Royal Castle Nightclub after Prohibition ended in the 1930s, but it still had a pretty dangerous reputation and popular destination among the, let's say, more criminal elements of St. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. One story I found from this time period was about an after-hours poker game that went wrong. Four gangsters were playing poker one night when one of them suspected he was being cheated and opened fire on the other three men. When a waitress entered the room because she heard the gunshots, she saw three of the men dead on the floor and immediately contacted police. When the cops arrived, they told her to wait outside. After a few hours, the waitress checked in on the cops and was shocked. The entire room was pristine There was no bodies, there was no blood, there was no sign of anything out of order. The cops told her to never call them again and file a false report. And then they left.
0: Damn.
1: (laughs) So what happened? According to the rumors, these cops were on the gangster's payroll. Okay. And they basically helped him drag the bodies to the back of the cave and bury them and then clean up the crime scene. The only evidence of this entire incident that remains today are some bullet holes that were left in the wall of the cave.
0: Wow, okay. I mean, like I think I said last time I did something in Prohibition era, cops drank for free. Mm-hmm. So that cops was the way of <laughs> not getting caught.
1: Uh, during World War II, the club closed and the mushroom business resumed full force. And it was also joined by cheese production from Lando Lakes and later Kraft. Basically, both of these dairy giants were trying to produce cave-ripened cheeses and blue cheeses specifically in an attempt to make St. Paul the, quote, blue cheese capital of North America.
0: How do you feel about blue cheese?
1: I enjoy it in certain applications.
0: I like it when I'm eating, like, wings, but Mm -hmm. I normally don't. I don't go for the chunks. I just go for...
1: I mean, if you're going to go for a chunk of blue cheese, you need to have something to balance it. Like, it's really good with, like, sweet things. Yeah. So it's like an apricot and blue cheese. Heavenly. Anyway. Thanks for bringing up my cheese, fancy bitch cheesiness. You brought up the cheese. (laughs) Uh, Alas, St. Paul is not the blue cheese capital of America because by the 50s, this whole blue cheese operation kind of petered out. Damn. Although, Lando Lake still used the Wabasha Street case for years afterwards as a storage facility. Basically, up until the 1970s, they were storing cheese there. Okay. The mushroom business itself eventually moved to a more modern facility as well in 1965. So, by the 70s, the caves were pretty much abandoned, but they wouldn't stay that way for long. By the mid-1970s, a disco dubbed Club Royale, or Club Royal, depending how fancy you want to get, opened in the caves and was a relatively successful fixture of St. Paul's nightlife for a number of years. Today, a portion of the cave is still used as an event center. There's twelve thousand square feet of space that's finished with brick walls, stucco ceilings, carpeted dining room space, beautiful tile floors in a cocktail area. There's a theatrical stage, this really long hardwood dance floor, plenty of dining and meeting space, and a sixty foot wooden bar. I looked at pictures of this place and it looks super cool. Yeah. Like it's one of those places where it would be amazing to go to a party there or a wedding or even just see a band play there. Oh,
0: yeah, it sounds really interesting.
1: Additionally, the caves also host things like swing dance nights, gangster nights, and they do historical and haunted tours. Cool. Now, the event center actually only uses a small portion of the networks of caves under the bluff. Unfortunately, flooding and dumping of refuse over the years has filled the abandoned portions of the cave with just trash.
0: Not to mention a few dead bodies.
1: And a few dead bodies. Um, It's done little, though. The prospect of climbing over trash, maybe seeing a body, to deter the interest of urban explorers. Uh, During the early 2000s, St. Paul attempted to close the caves after a series of accidental deaths of young cave explorers occurred. Basically, these urban explorers would go into these caves and they would experience some kind of misfortune, whether it was a fire, a cave-in. A couple of them died through carbon monoxide poisoning. And the city was like, you know what? We need to seal these caves.
0: By urban explorers, you mean people that don't know how to mind their own damn business.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Your words, not mine. Um, It seems that all of the accumulated crime, death, and debauchery at the Wabasha Street Caves over the years has really left their mark on the place. At any given time, there have been reports of 25 to 30 different entities spotted in the caves. Damn. Yeah. I was like startled. Yeah. I came across a ton of stories about people who had been in the caves, even people who had been at the event centers who encountered crazy ghostly activity. Wow. So it has all your standards. You know, you'll hear faint music playing. You'll see unexplained lights. Doors will open and shut on their own. And sometimes equipment that's placed on the stage area will move on its own mysteriously or even just be thrown off the stage. Wow. Yeah. There's a ton of eyewitness reports about these entities. The murdered poker playing gangsters have been spotted walking past visitors and disappearing through a cave wall. The dance floor is a super hopping place for ghostly interactions. Uh, a lot of people say that they'll see ghostly shadows who spin around the floor before disappearing.
0: That's scary, but kind of cool because you make it sound like they're just dancing the night away.
1: In my head, I immediately pictured the haunted mansion. Where like, Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> the ballroom ghosts. Yes,
1: Totally. Um, I
0: love that damn ride. And I think too. it's gone now, right? No,
1: no. They're still there. There's a
0: Okay, because I thought they were taking it down to put something else up.
1: No, they do they close it every season to like spruce it up for the holidays.
0: Okay. I know they, they ruined freaking um what was that ride called in Epcot? Uh the Norway one.
1: Oh yeah, the Norway one's now a frozen ride.
0: Yep. And I'm so pissed off because I loved that ride. No,
1: they can never get rid of Honda Mansion because it's one of like the original rides that Walt help design yeah. so it's got to stay also in the dance floor slash bar area you have a bunch of reports of a ghostly man and woman who are in 1930s clothing who will stand near the bar um and they just kind of like almost like they're trying to get a drink which i mean i totally get that sometimes it does feel like it takes an eternity to get a drink some oh, nights yeah Near the stage area, there's a setting of a man who just kind of sits in the audience near the stage. Visitors report seeing an other man in a po- Panama hat also sitting in that area as well. Okay. Several guests have spotted men dressed as gangsters in the bathroom. Uh, one in particular is this guy, which is <laughs> kind of amazing, The story. He's dressed as a gangster, and he'll be seen in the bathroom looking at the wall, almost like he's looking into a mirror that's no longer there and straightening yeah. his tie creepily if the entity notices you he will turn around and wink at you and then disappear what the fuck (laughs) yep talk about a creeper wink
0: oh yeah that is not something i need in my life
1: (laughs) so my favorite story though that i found eden was about a young boy who was attending a wedding at the event center in the wabasha street caves and Apparently, he made a bunch of friends at this wedding, and allegedly there's a photo of this boy sitting around a table with his new friends. But in the photo, it looks like he's being surrounded by a group of misty forms, presumably a bunch of ghosts he actually met at the wedding. Okay. Now, if you'd like to visit the caves, you can, but only until November of 2020. Why? Well, due to the financial impact of the Uh, COVID-19 pandemic, the owners of the Wabasha Street Caves are ending operations in November.
0: That sucks so much. I want to go here.
1: But hey, if you're looking to uh, get into the event center business, it's for sale.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So you could be the proprietor of your very own haunted cave.
0: Who doesn't want that?
1: (laughs) You just need to move to Minnesota.
0: Dream job.
1: (laughs) So, Eden, what are your thoughts?
0: That was really cool. I just, I want to go to a bar in a cave now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, anything that feels like subterranean in a bar is amazing to me. It's really cool. You can just Google Wabasha Street Caves and you'll get tons of photos that people have taken from events they've attended there. It's kind of amazing because they have like cute little rooms. Like one's like a fireplace room, one's the bar room. I even saw one that like cracked me up because it was like set up like a mithrarium where they had like a like a shrine to mithras like in the corner and i'm like that's great (laughs)
0: that's so cool but yeah yeah that was really neat i i think that we may have found something pretty cool with these haunted caves yeah and of course anything prohibition era you know that i love
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so
0: you definitely got me with this one nicole
1: excellent Uh, my sources for this week's story were wikipedia encyclopedia britannica jurgsbeer.com minnesotagoodage.com MinPost.com, st paul historical society wanderthemap.com and wabasha street caves.com
0: thank you very much for that story because i enjoyed it
1: you're welcome
0: also um i did want to mention something i got feedback on uh on how i am on the podcast which is kind of funny
1: no do tell
0: uh so i was told it's like you know Sometimes like, you know, when you're talking and I mean, I don't want to say that you sound pretentious, but and then because um, you're not like, well, when I went to school and I studied psychology, you're just like, well, I went to school and I studied psychology, you know, mm-hmm. is what I got. But I'm just like, God, I hope I don't come across as fucking pretentious for that.
1: Listen, you're not pretentious. I just edit you that way.
0: Yes, that's true. <laughs> Blame it all on Nicole, guys. If I come off like an asshole, <laughs> it's not at all that I'm just that way in real life.
1: All right, gang, if you like today's episode, uh, you can let us know. We'd appreciate it. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us via email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com.
0: You can also visit our website at show.podbean.com
1: You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Roadside Horror Show or on Twitter at Roadside Horror.
0: You can also uh, give us a review on your favorite podcatcher because it really helps us out. Um, yeah so just like subscribe and review
1: we'd appreciate it i'd like to thank yox rock's design for our logo and e massey for our intro and outro music as always
0: until next time gang creep on on, creeping creeping on